The day you're not solving problems or are not up to your button problems is probably a day that you're no longer leading. If your desk is clean and no one is bringing you problems, you should be very worried. It means that people don't think you can solve them or don't want to hear about them. Or, far worse, it means they don't think you care. Colin Powell. Hey friends, family, mom, welcome back to another episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, Cal Walters. I hope you're all doing well as you navigate the coronavirus and its impact on our world. As I'm recording this, the NBA just suspended the rest of its season. The Dow is down about 9.5% last I checked. And most of us are canceling events and praying for the best. I just want you to know that I'm praying for you and your family as you navigate this. To me, just like the sudden loss of Kobe Bryant a month or so, ago. It's just a reminder that we're all mortal human beings and that life is fragile and it's precious and all the more reason to make the most of the time that we have on earth. And remember that life is short. And with that, I just want to thank you so much for spending your valuable time with me on this journey to grow, to live a more intentional life, and to improve as a leader. If this is your first time joining us, we release a new episode every other Tuesday, so every two weeks, and sometimes a bonus episode in between. Its focus is on self-leadership, personal growth, and organizational leadership. And today, I'm really excited to bring you an interview with my good friend and mentor, Doug Crandall. Doug is a graduate of West Point and the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Doug has led multiple units in the Army, and he spent time in operations at Amazon. For five years, Doug taught leadership, advanced leadership, and leading organizations through change at West Point, where he won the Excellence in Teaching Award and exceeded the academy average in every area of teaching feedback during each semester that he taught. And in this interview, you'll see why Doug was such an effective teacher at West Point. He's very approachable. He's incredibly gifted. He has a great ability to tell stories and use personal examples examples to make it stick. He's also the co-author of four books, Permission to Speak Freely, Say Anything, Leadership's Lessons from West Point, and Hope Unseen, which is the inspiring story of Scotty Smiley, the U.S. Army's first blind active duty officer. Three of Doug's books were Amazon top new releases, and his books have also sold more than 60,000 copies worldwide and continue to gain momentum in Europe and in Asia. Doug has also published articles in the International Journal of Servant Leadership, and he's written case studies for both Stanford and Harvard business schools. I'll put links to all of Doug's books and items that we discussed during the interview at my website, which is calwalters.me, just my name, .me. Doug was a founding partner of the Blue Rudder Leadership Development Company, where he delivered high impact leadership development programs throughout the U.S., Europe, and Asia. He currently works at the Referent Group, a company in the healthcare leadership coaching industry, with another one of my good friends and mentors, Dr. Tom Husted. Doug lives in Washington State. He's passionate about his family and his faith, and you'll hear him talk about many of the leadership and life lessons that he pulls from everyday life, like coaching girls basketball. A special thank you to my good friend, Lance Dietz, for helping me craft some questions for Doug. I really think you're going to enjoy learning from Doug. Despite all of that Doug has accomplished. I'm impressed by his humility, his authenticity, his ability to tell stories. We discuss integrity, the struggle between being a competent leader and being authentic, his biggest lessons from teaching leadership and coaching leadership for many years and other powerful topics. With that, please enjoy this inspiring interview with my friend and mentor, Doug Crandall. 
Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cal. Excited to be here. It's so neat to, to see you. Uh, as we were talking about off camera, a lot of our, a lot of my friends, a lot of people I've interacted with in the Army, I think are, are connected with you. Someone, Lance Dietz, uh, my first company commander, David Webb, Tom Husted. So it's neat to just kind of see and reconnect with you. I'd love to start by asking you a little bit about kind of your background, some of the things that have influenced you the most as you now teach leadership and coach leadership. Can you help people just kind of understand some of the things that are most important to you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny when you, when you ask that question, like what shaped you, it immediately flashes into my mind of my dad. And I, I think that, I don't think it's, it's at risk of sounding cliche, but it just is so obvious to me. You know, like when I think about who I am and, and what I believe and what's important to me, like it all kind of comes, I think, from lessons I learned from him. And I, I'm not selling my mom short there at all. I think a little bit of the difference is my mom um, is still alive and I still talk to her. And I think that really when my dad died, I guess it was 16 years ago, just processed a lot of lessons and things I learned from him. And, and so what are those? Like he was a, a man who um, was super real. Like I, I just noticed even when I was a young, he was never trying to impress anybody. Uh, I remember he had friends and I can even remember conversations where his friends were talking about people that they kind of name dropping and stuff. And it wasn't that he was self-righteous about it. He just never did it. He was super quiet. He grew up during the depression. Uh, he grew up without a dad. He joined, enlisted in the Marines and eventually got to West Point and West Point was a huge part of his life. So all these things, West oh, wow. Point was a big part of my life, obviously. And now my daughter's there and, and uh, he just put us first, you know, like family was always first. So when I think about what's important to me, it's, it's my family and my faith um, and just living w with as much integrity as, as humanly possible, even though we all fail. So, yeah, I think my, th there's a lot of that. Like when I go back, it's these stories. And I, I also think my dad died when I was teaching at West Point. So right about the time, you know, we were getting to know each other. Uh, yeah. And that's where he had graduated from. And, and I was in this process of teaching cadets to know what we believe and why we believe it in order to be the best leader possible. And so my dad passes away. I mean, I received the news about that standing in my office at West Point on a Sunday evening, getting ready for my second semester of teaching there. Wow. And I can picture that. I have flashbulb memory of like picking up the phone and, and the woman who told me that he had died was not even someone I knew. She was just a neighbor who was like helping my mom out. And, um, and so here I'm in the midst of talking about reflection with cadets and teaching reflection and what we believe. And I'm processing all these lessons. And I think that even though I was whatever, 30 something at that point and had lived a lot of life, it just was, it got just stamped on my heart and in my brain, what I really believe. And so much of that was connected to him. So for the last decade and a half, I think I've gone forth just with all those things in my mind. But, um, wow. Yeah, so that, that is a, a simple answer. And then there's also just all kinds of uh, other people. I think people shape us more than anything and the experiences that, that we have with others. You mentioned about your dad, and it's so neat just to hear you reflect on your dad and, and what a tribute to him. You mentioned integrity, I think, of one of the things that stood out to you about your dad. Can you give us just kind of a, a picture of what that looked like or some things he might do that would demonstrate integrity? Yeah, you bet. I mean, it's, um, again, it, again, uh, a softball question for me personally, because it, it, uh, 
when I think of core values and that's really, as we teach leadership, we talk about there being no leadership experts, like almost at the beginning of any program that I've taught any class really since I've been at West Point, since I taught at West Point years ago, we would say there are no leadership experts. Like we're only experts on our own leadership because we lead from who we are. Mm-hmm. And so the real essential is knowing who we are. And so I set out to like, Hey, if I'm going to teach this, I got to know who I am and what I believe and what are my core values. And, and I think integrity um, is kind of the one non-negotiable for leaders. And so I've really thought, well, what does that mean and to me personally and how in the hardest of times with all these external pressures, how am I going to be a person of integrity? And I think that going back to the why of it, and my dad is the why of it for me. He really is. So um, the simple story I tell but it is probably the most important story of my life, which sounds weird, um, but it is. Like if, I, if I was trying to pick the center of who I am beyond just being um, saved by grace you know, through Jesus, it would be this story where uh, I had, and sometimes when I tell it in programs, I sort of set it up and there's an arc to it, but I had this guy, Eddie Baker, who uh, we were born two months apart. And he was, Eddie was born in September. Uh, I was born in November. And we were best friends for all of our childhood and we're still close friends, you know, not as close. He lives in Brooklyn now and I'm in Seattle, so we're obviously not, but he was in my wedding and uh, I I saw him maybe a year ago. Our brothers were best friends. My dad and Mr. Baker did stuff, played golf or did other things together like almost every weekend. And then my mom and Mrs. Baker were super close. So our families were just intertwined. I went on vacations with Eddie. I remember we took a a trip to Canada and a motorhome for like a week and I mean, we were just, we spent the night at each other's house at least once a month, you know, like it was just, we were connected. We love sports. And in sixth grade, uh, my dad coached our select soccer team. So we went from playing recreational soccer to select soccer. and There were going to be tryouts. And the way my dad set it up was he had a committee of three other people that he thought knew soccer. And, and it was all pen and paper back in those days, but it was, there was a, uh, there were clipboards and sort of objective criteria. And there were about 40 kids trying out for this team. And I remember thinking that my dad would cut me if I wasn't good enough. Like, because that's oh, wow. how much integrity he had. You know, I wouldn't, he wouldn't have done it cruelly. It would have hurt him, but he would have done it. So I was nervous about these tryouts. Wow. And they were a Saturday, Sunday thing. I remember playing well on Saturday and thinking, oh, I think I'm going to make it. Like, this won't, <laughs> I'm not going to suffer the embarrassment of not making my dad's own team. Uh, <laughs> Sunday came and you could kind of tell, like, he's put me in this group. Well, this looks like the group of guys who are not playing as much because they're probably already picked or whatever. <laughs> and I still remember watching at Highland Middle School and back in, in Seattle area those days, I lived in a place called Bellevue. Uh, there were dirt tracks around every middle school field because there was so much rain. It was pre-AstroTurf. And I can remember the, the people my dad had picked, the four of them standing around by this old set of wood bleachers looking at their clipboards and talking and thinking, am I going to make the team? So however much longer, 20, 30 minutes later, they come with a handwritten list of who made the team. My dad posted it somewhere, and we're all looking at it. And I, I find my name, and I'm, hey, I made it. And I keep looking at the list, and Eddie hadn't made the team. Hmm. And I just – I was floored. Like, as a 12-year-old, I couldn't believe it. Because Eddie was good. Like, if there were 40 guys trying out, like I said, 15 made the team. He had to be 16, 17. I mean, it wasn't like yeah. if my dad had taken him, anyone would have thought it was political. But he doesn't make the team. And I, all I really remember about that is three-second like, movie in my mind of driving home 
and crying and yelling at my dad, like, I hate you. I don't want to play for your stupid team. Like, why don't you love Eddie anymore? Um, and I just didn't get it. Mrs. Eddie's mom didn't talk to my mom for quite a long time. Like, they didn't understand wow. it. You know, you think about cutting your – so not only your son's best friend, but your best friend's son, and then having to go see him the next weekend playing golf or whatever. Um, and I, I don't – know that that impacted me when I was 16 or 20 or 28. But like when my dad died, I just, I, I gave his eulogy and I didn't share that story actually because the bakers were there. I didn't want to, you know, like bring it yeah. back up. But, um, but in the three stories I did share, like I edited that one out. It was number one. And what I took from it was just my dad used to, all the time at the dinner table talk about choosing the harder right, which was a line from the West Point Cadet Prayer, like choose yeah. the harder right instead yeah. of the easier wrong. And he had a couple stories he would go to that I heard like 10 times. And I don't think he did it like with a ton of intention. Like it's interesting. My dad wasn't necessarily an intentional parent. And he just learned through observation. Yeah. And so he would share stories just because those were the stories he had. And it had been a couple years since he told them. Um, but he had stories about his time at West Point and things he did there. But the ultimate lesson was choose the harder right. And mm. cutting Eddie was this, to me, this incredible decision where uh, had he not cut him, no one really batted an eye. It's not some huge moral failure. Like he could have just taken him. Yet the consequences of cutting him were, for him personally were enormous. Mm. And my mom, I remember my mom saying he just believed that if he did it, it wouldn't have been fair to that 15th kid who did make the team. And he promised to be objective. And whether you agree with that or don't agree with it or whatever, like he did what he thought he was right or thought was right in the face of enormous consequences. And I just, so when I talk about integrity or someone asks me like, what's a core value? You can say, Hey, doing the right thing is important to me. Hmm. I can tell that story about my dad. And like, I've had moments in life where many moments in life where I'm thinking about, should I do this or this? And it's like, man, if my dad had the courage to cut Eddie, like I got to do the right thing right now. So I, mm. I, uh, you know, I probably um, make him a bigger hero in my mind. Uh, and I hope everybody does that with their own dad. Or we all hope mm. our kids, I hope my kids do that, you know, someday. Uh, but it sort of illustrates that process of us making meaning of our own experiences. And for me, I've just turned that one into the center of, who I try to be in a lot of ways when I'm operating as a leader and as a person. So yeah. he had another one, just as a quick story. And oddly enough, it, it involves soccer and it's sort of an integrity thing, but it's just a values thing. He, it was, it was that year. So now we're playing on that team. Maybe I was still a little mad at him or something. And he's trying to teach us how to do corner kicks. And my dad never played soccer. And I knew that like kind of the generation of us that grew up in the early eighties playing soccer. We had parents that coached, but, they usually hadn't played because it wasn't a sport. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. a popular sport in the 50s yeah. or 60s. And so he's teaching us how to do corner kicks, and he's telling us you lean over the ball and get it up into the air. And I'd been to soccer camp that summer with some college players as counselors and stuff, and, and they had taught us specifically, like, to get the ball up the air, you lean backwards. And so while he's telling us this, I, you know, again, this is just a fuzzy movie in, in my mind, but I, I know I interrupted him. I was like, Dad, that's not. You, you lean backwards to get it up in the air. He kind of looks at me calmly and says, well, let's just do it my way. And I, I'm sure I went over and like leaned over and intentionally just kicked it on the ground and be a pain in the butt. But whatever, a day or two later, I was standing in our garage, like, I was holding this huge bag of Tyro, like 
dry dog food, pouring it into this bucket because we have this huge St. Bernard. And uh, he opens the door from our kitchen, and it's about six inches up from where I was standing. And he just looks at me. And he says, hey, I looked up the corner kick thing. You were right, and I was wrong. Wow. And he just goes back inside. And uh, I don't know that he would probably ever remember that moment. And I don't know why I remember it so vividly. I just do. I just remember him. My dad, after I'd been obnoxious, even at 12, I processed like how profound that was that mm. I'd been obnoxious. I'd interrupted him um, disrespectfully in front of the team. And he went and checked it and came back and said, like, you were right and I was wrong. And wow. uh, I think that's given me this just spirit. Uh, I mean, I coach high school basketball now. It's just the other day we were <laughs> going over to inbounds play that they'd run wrong in a game and I wanted to fix it. And then in my mind, I actually showed them to run it like they'd run it wrong. So I just got confused. And one of the girls even said, Coach, that makes this a way harder pass. And I was like, no, this, like, this is how you get the pass. Then I went to my backpack and I pulled out the play. And I'm like, I was wrong. <laughs> they were right. So I just came back and I was like, Katie, you remember when I told you never to question me? And the last brother, you were like, no, I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. You were right. No, I'm like, let's fix it. So. I think even the ability just the other day to do that at practice, you know, and cause I, I even thought like I could just let this go. Like the way we're running, it's okay. Mm. But I just, I don't know. And, it, and it's, those things are hard because you're, I'm coaching these girls. They want to believe in me. Mm. They want to think I know what I'm talking about. And when you're on them to run their plays, right. And then you don't get it right. It's just, it's that whole leading by example, but yeah, man, I think the authenticity and just being real trumps anything else, you know, and just, um, yeah that's kind of an integrity thing like i just told them no this is how we do it yeah um i'm kind of hiding it from them if i don't go back and say no i was wrong like we do it this way you're right so yeah that was a long way of saying like i i think um i think this this idea of choosing the harder right is really what integrity is to me and my dad showed me that and i think having these specific examples even if i'm i've lionized them in my own mind um provides a pretty solid foundation man there's so much you said there that i just there's so many things that are going through my mind as you tell those stories one is the power of how much of our parents shape our story and how much our lives are made up of these moments uh, and i can tell just by the coaching you're doing with your kids like you're giving your kids these moments that they're going to have to kind of reflect back just like your dad did and also the leadership lesson there of the balance between competence, you know, I think leaders feel this need to be competent, but also the need to be authentic and be willing to have that humility to say, you know what, maybe I, maybe I wasn't right here, or maybe I didn't have all the information, or maybe you were right. And I just love that. I think that's, that's something that I know I can take away from. And I appreciate you, you sharing that. Doug, one question I wanted to ask you, you've been coaching teams, you've, you've been teaching leadership, you know, uh, you've had several companies that you work for where you, where you teach leadership. What would you say are some of the biggest lessons you've learned about leadership over all that experience? If you kind of had to sum it up, what would be some of the, the top things you would, you would say you've learned? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I really just three, one that was reinforced yesterday. Um, it's just this idea that and I said it earlier, like we, we have to be who we are as we lead. And we certainly want to try to be a better version of who we are and understand ourselves. Mm, that's good. I like that. There, there's, 
a book title that is my absolute favorite. So we all have books we love and can go to, but I have a title that just sticks out to me and it's, you know, Colin Powell has written a couple autobiographies and one he wrote a little earlier, not in life, but in his journey, I think before he was, it was more about his military experience and then before he became secretary of state. And then after he had some of this more prominent national political experience, he wrote another one and it's probably been 10 years now, I think, I don't, but he titled it, It Worked For Me. And I just think, think about a gentleman who grew up in New York City and um, is self-made, got an ROTC scholarship, became chairman of the Joint Chiefs and Secretary of State, writes an autobiography and titles it, It Worked For Me. Like how much he gets, like, hey, here's, here's who I am, take yeah. what you, I mean, it's, it's like basically him saying, here's this journey I went on, take what you will from it. Um, yeah. And so in all the teaching we've done, have really gotten to that theme. Like um, we are going to share a lot of stuff with you and there are theories and there are ideas and there are case studies and you're going to get feedback from your peers, but ultimately it's got to work for you. Hmm. Um, and there are some caveats to that, you know, like we, if part of who you are is and part of who I am is, as a coach is I lose my temper with referees and I've struggled with that for 15 or 16 years. And I finally kind of arrived with it, honestly, like it's been this long journey and <laughs> I'm through this high school season where I haven't even got a warning on the bench in 26 games. And it's, I was telling the girls, and I think they thought I was crazy. Like you have no idea like what a personal triumph this is for me. And I was even a little choked up and, and uh, like another coach got a technical and the athletic director was telling us, how professional we were and like, like are you kidding like it's been 20 years and now someone's telling me that that i was the professional one you know but I, so being a you know having a little temper is me but i've got to work on that so i'm not saying we're not we're constantly developing and, and shaping ourselves but we've got to be who we are and I, so to go back i said this just happened yesterday i was trying to figure out how to share this experience we're having with you know our family our family dog is kind of on his last few days and uh and so i've had this big playoff game it's all sort of interconnected and i thought about sharing it with the girls and one of the leadership development programs i'm teaching right now i have I, i'm teaching all the um i'm there every three weeks but i happen to not be at this one because of our basketball playoffs and, and my partners were teaching it and i texted them and i was like hey you can start off class today by asking about this you know i i've got this thing going on we have a big playoff game tonight they've met the dog when they come over to the house like do i share it with them and kind of tell them how this connects to who i am as a coach and who we are as a team and use that to as from sort of some inspiration and just share it with them because we're a family uh and so they did they could kind of this real-time case study with this group of 35 people who we are uh, in the process of, of leadership development with and that's a fairly tight group as well as we're building it and the text I got back was the general consensus is no, you don't share it. Mm. Um, and uh, it was like two hours later and I'd already, I'd already written the girls a letter. So I ended up sharing it like via our group chat over mm. a letter. And I'd asked my daughter what she thought, you know, getting input and she's 20. Mm. And, um, she had said, yeah, I think this is good. I would share it. Mm. I don't know. I think we, <laughs> it's easy to say because we won last night by two points, you know. And, you know <laughs> hey, winning matters, right? <laughs> dramatic fashion, and we're going on the state. But I, I think it makes this whole experience with the team like they'll. I think they'll remember that, and it's just part of who who I am and who I yeah. want our team to be. But the overwhelming response from this class was, "Yeah, I think that's too much. They might not get it." 
and I don't disparage that advice. Like it may be good advice. They don't, but it's just, that's who I am. Mm -hmm. There could be people sitting in that room saying, talking about your dog with your girls basketball team makes no sense to me. I would never do that. And they may be five times better coach than I am. Like, I don't like it. There's no right answer. Mm -hmm. Um, But we certainly lead best when we, as I said earlier, like we know what we believe and why we believe it. And then we go and live that out. And I think um, as long as what we believe and why we believe it isn't horribly evil and, and uh, lacks integrity and certainly there, but there have been leaders who knew what they believe and why they believed it. They were just bad things they believed, but they were super effective because they knew what they believed and why they believed it. So uh, that's really, as I've learned, you know, that's the lesson I keep reinforcing because you meet, as, we, as we've taught leadership, you meet such a wide variety of people. Or, or being in the Army, you see tough-as-nails NCOs that I just could never be like you. And yeah. I kind of cringe when I see you. But, man, the soldiers you're leading respond and respect you and would do anything for you. But I could never be that, you know? And so, um, or you meet the people who just have charisma pouring out their veins and and they're just positive and people just want to be around them and i could never be that you know Mm -hmm. so that uh that's kind of maybe the biggest thing i've learned interacting Mm -hmm. with all these people and and then you you learn it even further because you we, we we do teach theories or we tell stories or we have case studies and you will have one person who this story or this theory changed their life and then you got another person who's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, so, yeah. well, which is true. I mean, they're both true, right? They're both true. This person, this, so that's a, I think that's an important lesson. I think that's an important lesson we're developing others as leaders mm. is not trying to shape them into who we are. There's, yeah. there's a lot of that. Like, this is my path and here you go. Here's how you follow my path or mm. here's how you, you handle this. Just asking questions of people. Well, what's going to happen if you do it this way? And what do you believe? And, yeah. Okay. No, so. I think that's really good. And I think it's kind of liberating too, as a person, as someone who's trying to, to lead, to, to think, you know what? I can be me. Like you said, I can be my best self. I don't have to try to be someone else. I can learn from someone else. I can be inspired by someone else. Uh, but at the end of the day, I just need to be who I am and be authentic. Have you found any practices, techniques, uh, or ways that you help leaders? maybe get a better sense of their true self or their best self? Do you guys have a way of asking questions or, I don't know, tools that you use? Like how do, people, how do you help people maybe discover who they are and the type of leader that they would be best as? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I love that word too. And I mean, as much as I've been doing this, so what, I learned something on the podcast today, Kyle. Okay? <laughs> All right. Hey, the word liberating is awesome. I love that. It is, it is liberating yeah. in a sense. Um, so we have this tool called the journey line and we borrowed it from a guy named Noel Tishi who taught Michigan's business school and there's, there's other forms of it, but it's essentially we ask people to go through self-directed, start where they want, highlight what they want, but their life and their emotional highs and lows and just the, the things that have shaped them and then to form stories around those events mm. and then extract from those stories, their core values. There's three or four, maybe five core values. And we, we kind of joke around that like your core values shouldn't all start with the same letter. They probably don't spell something. You know what I mean? They can really be authentic about it. We're not trying yeah. to 
your core values if they spell star like there's probably something wrong um, <laughs> they don't have to create an acronym <laughs> yeah yeah and if they, yeah, so they might but that should be that should be random right yeah, i mean funny. so really authentically like and we also just add, like we get them in the mode of asking reflective questions like when's the time you took a stand or when was the first time you felt like a leader but turning that into sort of a a reflective process so those questions help start people start thinking like it it matters to think about what I believe or um, where that comes from, sort of back to those stories I told. Yeah. And then on a daily basis, reflecting like kind of how do I, that this person I just interacted with, like how did that go and why did it go um, that way? And really speeding up that reflection process. So there's a strategic reflection piece, which is who am I and who do I want to be as a leader? And then there's a tactical reflection piece. Like how am I living that out and mm. how is it, working right now in this moment or why am I so frustrated about this and it can be uh can be tiring you know I mean honestly in a certain way but yeah I'm sure um, I think giving ourselves some grace is part of that which can be maybe the hardest part for some people I know I find it hard but yeah but I self-awareness and reflection are kind of so if I were if I was to say there are some non-negotiables with like being an intentionally authentic good leader I, I think that you have to be reflective and somewhat build your self-awareness by whether it's through other people giving you feedback and listening to it and then growing. Uh, yeah. I think that's all key. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think what I've discovered as I read and learn is it's not just about knowing myself, which is super important, but it's also kind of a knowing myself and how that, how being me how that's going to affect other people, how other people are different. So I might be an extrovert, and this person is an introvert and I might perceive what they're doing as uh, they're just disinterested, but really they're just very different than I am. And so just kind of it's part knowing me and part kind of knowing how I'm different from the people around me. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Doug, about your book, Permission to Speak Freely. Can you tell us just what the kind of the basic idea behind that book is? Yeah, you bet. It's um, the basic premise is that when you lead, the people that you lead should be able to say anything to you. And that covers a, a gamut of things. I think in a lot of people's mind that immediately becomes the, Hey, I think this is a stupid idea. I should be able to speak freely and say that. But really it's this, it's kind of a, um, I wouldn't say it's a subterfuge because we didn't have any ill intent, but when we really got done with it and you look at it, it's a very servant leadership oriented perspective hmm. in the idea that, the people you lead, the culture that you create, the, the relationship you create with them should be so trusting that they can come to you and say whatever they need to say. And that may include, I don't understand, or I need help. When I didn't, you just explained that to me three times, but I still don't understand what you were saying. Or <laughs> this doesn't seem like we're doing the right thing here. This, my conscience is bugging me. I, just whatever it is, as leaders, why shouldn't people be able to come and talk to us about it? And then ultimately there are enormous benefits to organizations if that ends up being the culture. So, well, I mean, we're cognizant of the fact like, we have very different audiences when we do this. And I have, I've spent a decent amount of time recently with educators and superintendents and, and I think people who, despite the cynicism that might pop up in their lives because of bureaucracy or they got into this to help kids and it's not all turned out the way they'd hope, whatever it might be, 
most of them are some of these like breaks or conferences reflecting on why they got into, you know, loving kids in the first place. And so they have these hearts of service and it kind of resonates with them. I mean, we've shared, it resonates with them naturally. Like, I, okay, even if there yeah. weren't, even if, even if you didn't show me all the metrics about how this makes my organization better, I would just, this makes sense to me. Um, hmm. My teachers need to be able to come to me as a principal and share their frustrations or what they think we can do better or that they're having a hard day. Um, we've taught it to groups on Wall Street or financial firms. And how do they react? Yeah, so it's different, right? Like it's yeah. how does this help our bottom line? And I, you know, I'm not. Um, I get that, but it's it is. It's just different. So, but we can we can look at them and say, look, if you have this culture where your junior analyst can speak up when they think something's about to go wrong, and we've written some case studies with a group, you know, around that. But it's a much it's a much tougher sell. I'll be honest. Like it's a tougher mm-hmm. sell. Like no, I'm the one who knows the numbers. Like people don't need to be coming and telling me if they don't really know. So it, yeah, it. It, uh, but we do believe that we have a lot of we have a decent amount of research in the book. We had more in kind of our previous version before it was edited, and um, mm. maybe it got a little bit cumbersome. But around just the overall benefits in terms of innovation and engagement and uh, and performance, if you do this in an organization. But I'll be honest, like that's not why we wrote it, or we believe in it. You know, I mean, I I, I believe in it uh, because my dad came to me and said, "I don't know, you were right, and I was wrong." You know, I mean, mm. I, I think. Uh, that created this relationship where even though I didn't say it in the right way and I was obnoxious and I interrupted him in front of the team, I did say the right thing. Like you were mm-hmm. supposed to lean back when you take corner kicks and he yeah. ultimately come and came and affirmed that. And then, mm-hmm. then the interesting thing was, well, how does that make me feel as a follower? Well, now I, at 12 years old, I said, man, I could have been a little more respectful to my dad, you know, like mm-hmm. he didn't deserve that. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I think it, build this trust that mm-hmm. and then just imagine that relationship where we trust each other so much that yeah i'm leading i'm leading this organization but um i care about you so much that you can say whatever to me and you now say whatever and uh it's just open right like so yeah. um that's that's what the book is about i think there is an element of a feel for leadership in there that I believe in and that Matt believes in that um, the book it's bigger than just the one concept. Yeah. Uh, and again, I mean, you talk about people, we talked about Tom Husted earlier and mm-hmm. I know from him being a great friend and that to him, it had an incredible impact at the time he was commanding a hospital mm-hmm. and he just admitted, he was like, yes, yes, yes. And he turned the pages. Uh, yeah. We've had other audience where they're like, this is stupid. You know, like, what, that, like you don't get our, our environment and our culture. And maybe, maybe we don't. I mean, so yeah. it, uh, I guess I would say if it works for you. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> it worked for me. Good, right? If it works for yeah. someone, it's good. <laughs> Can you tell the story? I love the story at the beginning of the book about, I think it was 10-year-old Timmy playing defense uh, yeah. with his back to the ball. I think that's a great illustration of, I, I think, kind of the point that you're making in the book. Yeah, for sure. It's another example of like why speaking of matter. So he, I was, uh, he was playing basketball and you know, there's only this struggle. Like you could do, um, you could do a 40 hour podcast on, on youth sports and parenting and different things. <laughs> and, and Timmy's our youngest and I've certainly got it way more right with him than I probably do with our oldest. And like, you know, I apologize to our oldest regularly that he had to be the, the test case or whatever. But, uh, so I, 
you learn like you don't want to go to your kids' games, and you just like there's this guy Bruce Brown who I take all my advice from, and, and hundreds of thousands of people out there literally take their youth sports um, parenting, youth sports advice from Bruce. Um, but he he says you know the only thing you should say to your kid when you get done with the game is I enjoyed watching you play. You know I mm. love watching you play. Mm. Um, their coach can coach them and whatnot. He, and he has this research that says he has research from kids. He's he's interviewed thousands of kids that he coached, and and overwhelmingly, kids' least favorite part of sports is the car ride home. It's it's just fascinating. Wow. And so. All this is on my mind, but I just can't. There's no moment of weakness, even with the last one, even though he's in fifth grade. I could just give him some friendly advice, right? Like not criticize him because he, in my mind, he just wasn't working hard enough on defense. And it's crazy when you think about it. He was all 10, you know, but um, I wasn't being mean. I was just telling him, like, Timmy, you know, um, don't turn your back on the ball. And I guess I'd been talking for like three minutes and we're just pulling into, I mean, it's right out here as I'm sitting here in my house. Like we just pulled into our driveway out here and I'm putting the car in park and I'm looking into the rear view mirror. And one more time, I'm basically like, so, you know, don't, don't turn your back on the ball on defense, which, you know, means from a coaching perspective, like you've always got to see both the man or woman, the girl you're guarding and the ball at the same time. So you open up and see both, but he's 10 and, as I'm looking through your mirror, he looks at me and he's like, I don't know what you mean. I don't even know what you mean. And he's just, I've just worn him out and he's exasperated. Um, and one of the concepts we talk about in the book is the curse of knowledge that when we know things, we forget what it's like not to know. Mm, and we may go good. on for five minutes explaining something to somebody that works for us, mm. using acronyms that they don't understand and, or language that's going over their head because it's simple to us, you know, it's, it's a, it's a concept crucially important to teachers that you're not talking above people because you've been doing this for years. And so he didn't know what I was talking about. So I'm telling him this whole thing, but, and we, we joke too, like that Timmy hadn't read difficult conversations or, or fierce conversations or any of these books that teach you how to speak upward. He just let his dad know you're being an idiot right now. And, um, and, but the, the thing about it, and there's real lessons in it, is if he doesn't say that to me in that moment, if he's not so frustrated that he finally says, I don't know what you mean, then he goes back out in the next game and he does the same thing. And what do I assume as leader, as parent, as whoever, I assume he's not listening. He doesn't care what I say. And he's just blowing me off, right? Because I told him, don't turn your back on the ball and he's still doing it. And so that's why we think this is so – it just – it prevents the destruction of relationships and the, yeah. the, uh, the assumptions that we make that are wrong because we, we explained it, but we didn't really explain it. So I, yeah, it was a, it was an enlightening moment and there've been others and, but it, it, um, I think someone we lead would probably try to be more mature and adult about it and would, wouldn't say, Hey, could you explain to me what you mean there? They'd mm -hmm. just nod their head. Maybe they'd go Google it or whatever, but they, we wouldn't have a real conversation. So, uh. hmm. yeah, I love that story. I think it's a great example. Um, so, as I was preparing for this interview, this podcast, I reached out to my good friend Lance Dietz, and I said, "Lance, I got I got Doug Crandall coming on. Do you have any questions for him?" So, I'd love to ask you just kind of a lightning round of some questions <laughs> that that Lance gave me. <laughs> you can also pass on these if you don't want to answer. No, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll answer whatever, Lance. So uh, the first question is, what habit or process for you has been the most worthwhile throughout your life? 
Wow. Um, yeah, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't go for my whole life. I would just say, kind of going back to those stories I told earlier, the process of just constant reflection on, on whether things are working or not, you know, and, uh, and that for me, that's been something that I think I, I like to do personally, you know, like, uh, I don't feel like I need a ton of feedback from other people all the time because I've given, I've got a lot of self feedback going on and it's just like, that's how I process things. But, but I've certainly um, become a better parent, a better leader, a better husband, friend, whatever, by just process of constant reflection. And I'll be honest, I don't have a, I don't have it systematized, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. different people, like I don't have a journal. Um, I don't have a time of day. I do it. And I think all those things can be healthy for people. But for me, it's just kind of an ongoing, Hey, I did this this morning. I interacted this way. How did that work? Didn't work that well. Let me do it this way next time. And I've, I've learned a lot from that. Have you always been that way? Or was there a point when you were like, oh, I'm going to start reflecting or I think this is important. Yeah. You know, I think that, yes, I think I've always kind of been that way, but I certainly didn't understand the importance of it or the, the, the leadership growth importance of it probably until I started teaching at West Point. So I took a class in graduate school uh, where we had to write this enormous kind of 40 page journal about our leadership experiences. And that came naturally to me and I have that still, but I didn't recognize it for how valuable it was until I think I got to West Point and, and really started thinking about reflection and doing so much reflection there to then share who I was and all my failures and the things I learned with cadets. So it really took shape. Yeah. I mean, maybe starting about 20 years ago, but I, I think I've always done it. I think I did it when I was younger. Um, I just didn't know what I was doing. Hmm. And Doug, just kind of an observation that I see of you is just your humility. And I think that also probably leads to curiosity and just, I think reflection is the assumption is that I have something to learn from my own experience. Uh, and I think that I can just see that in you, which is really neat. So I think our listeners will, will learn a lot from that. All right. Here's the next question from Lance. He says, when in life have you felt the most at peace and content? And why do you think that was? I would say it's interesting. So there's probably a kind of a tie. And uh, the first one was, when I was writing this book with Scotty Smiley. So interestingly enough, I, that's when I flew out to Hawaii to connect with Dave Webb. And um, so Scotty was, we wrote this book together called Hope Unseen. And Scotty was our army's first active duty blind officer after losing his eyesight in Iraq to a, a suicide car bomber uh, back in 2005, I believe. Uh, it was either 2004 or 2005. But I, I left the army in the uh, summer of 2008 after 13 years and just after the best job I'll ever have teaching cadets at West Point. Uh, I did that for five years and I went to work for a company in corporate America and it was a, it was a kind of a, a salt of the earth leadership job and, and I loved the people, but I didn't, I wasn't going to be a fit for corporate culture, I think, or whatever. I just, it was a tough transition for me. And that was probably as much turmoil as I've had. I was, I was depressed and, and uh, I wasn't, looking for something to escape to by any means, but this just through circumstance, this opportunity to write this book with Scotty came up and I ended up leaving my job to support my wife and 
we we had no income. We only we weren't rich. I mean, we've been in the army for 13 years. My wife was a stay at home mom, so we were we weren't we were putting food on the table, but we weren't wealthy. Um, and we committed all our savings to this process of writing this book. But it was the one time in life that uh, I knew God wanted me to do something. And I think um, those of us who are people of faith pray about things. And and I don't. I mean, I have lots of questions, and I don't. Uh, I don't know why God's taking care of me in that instance. And there's people on another continent, millions of them who don't have you know, water to drink. I don't get all those questions, but I, I know that I've prayed about a lot of things and felt maybe I should do this, but it was the one time I knew God wanted me to do something. And I think that with no money coming in and we cut cable, I mean, we, we were living as like, you know, uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly not complaining. We still had everything we needed, but, we had, we got rid of everything we didn't need and uh, was just writing this book with not knowing whether we were going to get it published. And I've never been more peaceful because I knew that's what I was supposed to be doing in that over that year, year and a half. And, uh, and I have this weird, it's just weird. I don't want to tell a bunch of people listen to a podcast, but like everything has gone okay since then. And okay is putting it wildly, you know, like I always wanted to coach high school basketball and, here I am and I coached this amazing group of young men with my second oldest son for five years, like with this team called Subway Select and we're all still close and like everything's just worked after that. And I, I don't know, I can't explain it or whatever. I don't even try wow. to, but anyway, that, it's easy for me to go back to that. I remember Cal actually just this incredible feeling of elation and peace at the same time when I was on the airplane flying to Hawaii to go meet Dave Webb. And I'm this introvert. It's the last thing I'd ever want to do is go meet some guy I don't know. Yeah. And I remember he picked me up at the airport in Honolulu and he like gave me a hug and he's a super mm-hmm. friendly guy. And mm-hmm. I went and stayed with him and his wife, Tanya for like three days. And that is so not me. Like I, <laughs> like that is like, that's torture to me. Like going to, <laughs> stay at somebody's house by myself without my wife for three days. And I was just, it was just where I was supposed to be. And I remember it with all this joy. Mm. Um, and ultimately things worked out and Simon and Schuster published a book and we had this awesome mm. book launch and, yeah. and I'm still super close to Scotty and his wife, Tiffany. And anyway, that I can't really explain it, but I know that when I think about times in life where I was peaceful like that was it. And it was, mm we weren't making a bunch of money and it's been a really good lesson because it's been like, it's not Mm. about these other things, you know, it's not about, about making whatever, seven figures instead of six or I don't know, or six figures instead of five or Mm. uh, having this card. And so that was it. And then I would, I would just say, I feel right now like that. I mean, so Mm. not the same sense. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, but, um, I think that that uh, different phases in life are hard for different people. I was actually, you know, five years ago, I was reading stuff about like mid forties and how just a bunch of social science research says that's a time in life that it's kind of the least happy for a lot of men. And I wouldn't say I was unhappy, but that was making sense to me as I was reading those articles. But then, it, like, you get through it, and this fog lifts, and it did. It's kind of weird. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Wow. So I just feel like I'm sad. I'm sad. Our kids are growing up and that the last one's only got a year and a half in the house. And then just there's one sitting over there. It's graduating from college in three weeks, you know, early. So that's good. Good on him. Um, but, uh, that's, that's kind of sad. And we got a dog dying, as I mentioned earlier and, um, things change, but, uh, 
yeah, so I, don't, I, I think it is this working with Tom Houston and this guy that if I could have picked one person I'd like to work with in my life, like that would be it, right? And then somehow mm-hmm. it's come together. And uh, It sounds weird. I just feel like honoring kind of what God asked me to do, even though it wasn't hard to do it because I really, it was awesome. I've, I've always, I'd always wanted to write and, man, to write this story with a true hero and, and learn from him. That was an incredible opportunity, but but it was also you know it left my job and and then I give my wife a ton of credit and and uh, I, it's weird because I think now like what was I thinking like <laughs> I have four kids and, like it's been stressful over the last number of years like do we have money saved for college and how are we going to pay for these things and I need to like make sure I'm working and I'm like I I just was like I'm out like I'm gonna go write this book like they were one was about to start high school and and now I'm like hey where how can I go back and get that sense of peace amidst like total uncertainty um wow like I kind of I kind of envy my envy my prior self you know just um being able to go for it yeah so I love that. I love that. Um, so tell us a little about what you're doing now as we're kind of wrapping up. Uh, you mentioned Tom. What are, you, what are you doing with Tom these days? Yeah. It's an interesting connection because to me, this thing I'm doing with Tom <laughs> is sort of Tom's hope unseen. Like he is uh-huh. sure that God wants him out there helping doctors and nurses, you know, just the mm-hmm. Uh, at a time that they need it. So he mm. is a retired army doctor who has seen burnout and struggle amongst doctors and nurses and people in the medical profession. And there are firms out there doing it. And I'm sure there's people doing great work, but just from Tom's experience, he didn't see a lot, a lot of investment in leader development. And he just thought, here's this opportunity to develop leaders and also give them tools to get through the tough things of being in medicine. And, and there's some of the things we'd expect, like just having to treat patients and deal with sickness. And there are also some of the things you don't hear about, like bureaucracy and just the, the doldrums of the paperwork and medicine and all those things. So, and he, it was probably, it was over two years ago that he kind of reached out to me and said this. And I, I mean, I was like, number one, Tom, I'll, I'll follow you anywhere. Like, I think you're amazing, but I, yeah. I don't want to sell anything. Like, so, um, yeah it is really hard to, to develop business in this, in like kind of what you're talking about. And I, I can help if you need me on a phone call, but I don't, I'm not at the point where I want to be responsible for that. But man, if I knew one guy would probably figure it out, it was Tom. And uh, <laughs> I think, you know, a year and a half later, he had a pilot program in around wow. Louisville, Kentucky. And so we delivered that pilot over the course of like seven months, 40 hours, we had one particular person who came up after class and we don't know whether he was being literal or not, but it was probably with about two sessions to go. So we were two thirds of the way through and he's like, Hey, this, this class saved my life. And uh, we didn't, we didn't say, Hey, stop, explain that to us. What we want to sound bite. I mean, I, he just honestly said it and we don't know what he meant, but we've had some awesome results just giving mm-hmm. Doctors, the opportunity to share their journey lines and these things we've talked about and reflect. And that's the class I was talking about yesterday that they were doing where they, they uh, surveyed them to see whether I should share this story with my team about our dog. But uh, going back to everything I was saying, this was Tom's, like what he was sure he was supposed to be doing. And I was kind of like, I don't necessarily feel that right now, but I trust your calling. Yeah. Like, um, so if this is what you're being called to do, like I'm in. And, uh, and so it's the first time since I left 
my job to go write Hope Unseen that I've essentially been an employee somewhere <laughs> and um, working for a good boss. And yeah. uh, we're trying to build that. So they had a phone call yesterday with the hospital system, I think in, you know, in the Midwest. And uh, we've got this one contract going. And I have honestly this awesome opportunity to sort of tell them to go figure out the business and uh, then create and deliver these programs. And uh, I was a little skeptical at first on how this would work with, you know, just stereotype, stereotyping in my own mind, doctors and nurses and people who are busy and, and, uh, but so far it's, it's been fantastic. So. Yeah, man. Yeah. I love Tom Houston. Uh, and it's called the, the reverent group. Is that right? Uh, referent group. Yeah. Referent group. F and it's, uh, way back I'm, you wouldn't remember and this is one important lesson i learned about uh, teaching leadership is cadets didn't really remember stuff to the next week so all the <laughs> yeah. particulars of what we were teaching weren't nearly as important as the process and that was an important lesson like we're way more about process than content you know like it's the experience and building habits and anyway uh, there's this old social science theory the five bases of power um positional power which is reward coercive and legitimate and then the two personal bases of power expert and referent and it's sort of mm. even that we we're talking about earlier this conflict between mm. competence and character as Schwarzkopf would put it but um, admitting a mistake may mm. lower your expert power for a moment but build your referent power so referent power is this personal power mm. and, and the, the kind of sample lesson that Tom and his buddy Todd came out to view when they were exploring this they came out to Washington State and watched uh, my friend Matt and I teach a class and we were teaching on power and influencing mm. others that day. And they just loved the idea of referent power. And so that's awesome. Um, name their company, the referent group. Wow. Well, that's awesome, Doug. I, I, I so appreciate you being generous with your time today and I'll make sure and put links to uh, the referent group and all of uh, these books that we've talked about, all of Doug's books in the show notes at calwalters.me. Well, Doug, thank you so much for sharing these lessons with us today, telling us all of your awesome stories. I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure my audience has as well. So thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Cal. I appreciate you having me on. It's good to see you. You too, man. All right. Hey friends, I hope you got a lot out of that interview with Doug Crandall. There were so many great takeaways for me personally. And I wanted to leave you with one question to reflect on as you head out for the week. When was the last time that someone brought you a problem? When was the last time that one of your direct reports admitted to you that they didn't understand something? If it's been a while, then perhaps you have unintentionally created a culture where people can't speak freely. And it makes me think of this Andy Stanley quote where he says, leaders who don't listen will eventually be surrounded by people who have nothing to say. And so I just wanna encourage you, but I think the next best step you can do is tell your people Number one, that you want to hear from them, good and bad. And then when people bring you bad news, be particularly careful in the way you respond because what is rewarded is repeated. So if someone brings you bad news and you react in a very negative way, well, maybe they're not going to bring you any more bad news. Or if they bring you issues and you don't listen, you don't really demonstrate that you're listening, then like Andy says, maybe you will eventually be surrounded by people with nothing to say. So I just want to encourage you with that. I hope you have a wonderful week. Go out and live an intentional life, lead yourself, and make the most of the time you have because life is short. Let's make it count.